0: My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host of a Minor Detail Radio podcast, where the minor details of every story matter. Each week, I talk to Maryland newsmakers, from elected officials, journalists, political candidates, to policy wonks and everyday Marylanders. A Minor Detail podcast is the fusion between Maryland news and politics, real people, real stories, honest conversation. You can also follow us on the web at aminordetail.com. Sit back, relax, relax. And have fun. We are live broadcasting from the great city of Gaithersburg. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening. To a minor detail, radio podcast. Good evening, everybody, and happy Sunday. My wife and I spent all of this weekend lifting boxes from our other home in North Potomac over to our brand new house. And uh, I got into a fight with a box this week, and the box clearly won. If you look at my forearms, but uh, yes, it was a an exhausting week. But uh, the nice thing about it is, is that I had time today to set up my studio in the basement. And I have my sound uh, padded walls and my uh, bookshelves. And my wife said, you need to buy another bookshelf because you have way too many books. Just as I am sure that my guest tonight, Dr. Todd Everly, who is a, a St. Mary's College Associate Professor of Political Science and Public Policy, I'm sure he too has way too many books that uh, is sitting in his office or at home. Is that right, Professor? <laughs>
1: It is. And of course, I don't have sound padded walls. So if you happen to hear my children in the background, my apologies to everyone. Well,
0: you might hear mine as well, or the dryer going off, or uh, (laughs) our cats. So it's, uh, you know, when you move, or, you know, you're experiencing all kinds of kinks and creaks in in the house, and you're getting used to it. But uh, so far, so good. Uh, Professor, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, This is your first time on the show and you and I have conversed quite frequently through social media and Facebook. And I've been following uh, your career for quite some time and have followed what you uh, oftentimes the the interviews or the times that you've been quoted in the Washington post or the Baltimore sun or by other major Maryland media outlets. And you have your pulse on Maryland politics and what a great year to, to be uh, in the, of Maryland politics with our gubernatorial election. But first, let's talk about you. Um, You are, um, you live, now, Professor, you are living now down in St. Mary's County. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. I'm uh, down in what's uh, called California, Maryland, and Mm. it's right near where the Patuxent River Naval Air Station is, probably about uh, 20 miles north of the campus.
0: Are you a lifelong Marylander, born and raised?
1: I am not. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania and then lived for a while as a child in uh, far south Texas. I came mm. to Maryland in 1996, moved to the Columbia area uh, to go to grad school at the University of Maryland.
0: Yeah, I see that you, you have a Ph.D. in public policy from uh, the University of Maryland. And how long have you been an associate professor at St. Mary's College?
1: Well, I started with St. Mary's College in the fall of 2007, so I'm I'm entering into uh, my 11th year, uh, which seems hard to believe. Uh, You start out as an assistant professor, and then I was promoted to an associate professor about seven years in, and and again, as hard as it is to believe, uh, in the spring, I stand for promotion to what's called full professor. Those are the three stages you go through, assistant, associate, full. So um, that's the big news happening for me me career-wise in the spring.
0: Well, congratulations. That's a, uh, a much-deserved honor and uh, something that I will look forward to. And I'll, I'll tell you, my undergraduate was done at Duquesne University, and I majored in political science. So um, I, I, we have a lot to talk about. My, I love my political science professors, and I would be the guy after class to say, hey, what do you think about this? And we would get into current events. And I was in school during the heart of the Bush administration, right? um, Mm-mm. from 2003 until 2008. And I started out my, uh, my college career. I was going to be a teacher and, um, in actually music education. And I, so I did a year in music school and it was great, but I decided that I ultimately wanted to change over to political science, which was an interesting leap and one that I found to be rewarding. And so I, I studied, political science and history, and we had a fantastic department, and I I could stories about my college years. They weren't nearly as exciting as maybe Brett Kavanaugh's college years, but uh, um, it was certainly fascinating to go through uh, the Bush administration, and then I started working on Capitol Hill um, right out of college. Um, I worked for a Pennsylvania congressman named Bill Schuster, and Bill is actually retiring from Congress this year, I believe, from the 9th Congressional District. So here we are today, um, still, you know, love Maryland, live in Maryland. You and I both follow politics exclusively. But before we get into what's going on in Maryland, Professor, what is the study of politics? What is the study of political <laughs> science? Is, is politics a science or is it just the best, you know, guessing game that we can come up with with polls? And ads because people mostly think of politics as the back and forth, and they don't often consider it, that it's an actual studied science.
1: Right, although before I even get into that question, I, I'm, I'm actually amazed by some similarities here. Uh, I went to undergrad at Clarion University. So mm-hmm. you're at Duquesne, hop on 279-79, drive about an hour and a half north, and you're at Clarion. Uh, and I used to drive to college on the Bud Schuster Highway because everything <laughs> in that district was paid for um, by Bud Schuster's money. Yeah. Uh, so that that was during the Clinton years, and of course, same experience. Uh, my professors and I would get together after class, and we would just, you know, talk politics. And my best memories of undergrad are sitting in a professor's office and just just talking about what's going uh-huh. on. Uh, and that was back in the day when you still smoked on college and in offices. And, uh, those days I, I admit I smoked. So I would sit there with my professors and we would smoke cigarettes and, and talk about uh, the politics of the day. So they, they were good memories. Um, <laughs> I started working as a research assistant for one of my professors. Um, uh, Gary Gregg was, was uh, one of my professors. Then he's now at the Mitch McConnell School uh, in, in Louisville. Hmm. Uh, so I've stayed in some contact with him. But, yeah, then I, I – I, you know, moved to Maryland and started working for a lobbying firm in DC. And just, it just sort of went from there. Uh So, I mean, that's how I, I wound up in this, in this world, but it's just sort of crazy to think that, you know, we were about two hours away from each other, just a, probably about a decade apart.
0: About a decade apart. Yeah. I'm 32. And I'm sure you're not far off uh, <laughs> in that age bracket. Yeah, I, and, yeah, I, I am two not daughters. 32,
1: that I could say for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Uh, I, my homecoming is coming up at Duquesne, um, and my wife and I try to go to it every year and we typically run into some of my old professors and back in college, I was a little bit more conservative than I was today. I started out on the, uh, you know, the, the George W. Bush bandwagon and, uh, all, you know, fighting against the liberals, going out and getting the petitions, but I will tell you a, a very brief story that, when I was in college, Pittsburgh is a great city to do politics in. It's a, it's a fascinating place, and it's, it, you would think of Pittsburgh as more of a machine-style politics. And uh, being in Pennsylvania, I'm sure you, you, you know the dichotomy of the, the Pittsburgh versus Philadelphia. And both major cities yep. in Pennsylvania, um, they, are, they have a distinct characterization of how they do politics. And I worked for a guy, um, a, a judge, when I got my first start just collecting signatures because judges run on both ballots in Pennsylvania. You have to get on the democratic ballot and the Republican ballot. So we, my fraternity brothers and I got together as a project once and went out and collected signatures for this judge. And he actually ended up winning the November election. And that was cool. And then um, I got involved with another little known city councilman there named Bill Peduto, who's now the mayor of Pittsburgh and I was in school during the Ravenstall years, and that was interesting, and I was an intern at News Radio KDKA 1020, and that was a fascinating time because the the Ravenstall administration was constantly plagued with scandal. There was always something going on. There was a chief of police scandal um, right around the time I left college, so I I got to experience politics in full in the city of Pittsburgh, and it really kind of shaped me up for what um a little bit about what what I learned on Capitol Hill, but man, nothing has prepared me for politics like today. Nothing. I never thought it would right. descend, right. descend into what we are all witnessing as a country here this year. But um you know, I I love I love the St. Mary's College campus. It's probably one of my favorite campuses um in maryland and southern maryland professor it is such a cool place my wife and i love to get down and uh i love the i we would move to the eastern shore if it weren't for our kids being in school i mean that's our ultimate dream we got married in st michael's Place, i believe um I, I don't i think it might be in st mary's county or there's there's something southern to that but there's a like a park that looks out onto the chesapeake bay and it just has some really nice scenery there um, I Sure. Forget what it
1: Point Lookout State Point Lookout State that, Park is is I think what you're thinking about, and it's it's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. It's down in the yeah. very southern part of the county.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful place, and we like to go to Solomon's Island. Uh, we've been there a few times, um, and we've been to uh, I know that uh, we we try to get down there at least a couple times a year. And Saint Saint Mary's County in southern Maryland, Calvert County, that's Mike Miller territory, isn't it, Professor?
1: Yeah, so we're we're south of Mike Miller's uh, Senate district, but he, he's very much um, a major power broker down in this part of the state. There's no question about it. Um, oh, years. And it's fascinating, too. Uh, you know, St. Mary's, uh, we, whether it be St. Mary's, Charles or, or Calvert County, which sort of creates Southern Maryland. Th- these are areas that were sort of old style FDR Democrats really held on to the party for a very long time, but they were very conservative Democrats. And what you've seen over the course of the past decade, decade and a half, of course, is that that realignment that's taking place in Maryland, where they finally just started voting Republican, which which leads to someone like Larry Hogan winning about seventy percent of the vote in St. Mary's County, uh, when it wouldn't have been that long ago that the Democrats were at least competitive here.
0: I, if if you know, let's go back a few governors, and would you classify Southern Maryland? Um, and I'm sure you would remember better than I would, but would Southern Maryland have gone for, let's say, a Paris Glen Denning or a William Donald Schaefer?
1: Well, I think that they would have been far more compa- – I mean think about it. William Donald Schaefer won by overwhelming margin in sure. both of his elections. By the time we get to Glen Denning, you're starting to see that split. I mean 94 was the Republican surge year. Um, I'd actually be curious to just how close St. Mary's County was in that election it's under O'Malley that it really starts to move away oh actually I take that back it's under Kathleen Kennedy Townsend and then O'Malley when it really starts to move away
0: yeah the I remember I was in high school in 2002 I was a senior and that's when and I don't remember much about politics I wasn't really involved too much in politics in high school I just remember a guy at my AP history class uh my senior he came in and he said uh, he wanted to give us a Kathleen Kennedy Townsend button to wear. And I said, and I had no idea if I was a Democrat or a Republican at that time. And I said, and he said, well, you should vote for her because she's a Kennedy. And I said, oh, <laughs> so then we we got to studying who uh, the her opponent was. And, you know, even still, I, I was only 17 at that time, so I, I couldn't vote nonetheless in fact my first election that i voted for for president was in 2004 for um in the in the bush Kerry election and i i gotta tell you i i started uh paying attention a little bit to the gubernatorial election between bobby ehrlich you know a little known congressman from uh from baltimore who lived in arbutus and was a member of the maryland house of delegates and he rose up and uh got got himself elected to Congress and really I don't think anybody thought Bob Ehrlich was was gonna win and then things started to suddenly shift and they realized that Kathleen Kennedy Townsend otherwise known as KKT she ran a historically awful campaign professor and then thus Bob Ehrlich was elected and served uh two or was it four four years and then he was beaten in two thousand and six by uh, Baltimore, then Baltimore Mayor, Baltimore City Mayor uh, Martin O'Malley. But it's kind of interesting to study those two years, or the 2018 versus 2006. Both were 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 a terrible year for Republicans, and yep. we remember that this was around the time at the at the peak of the Iraq War in 2006, and that's when Democrats took over Congress. And Nancy Pelosi was elected Speaker of the House. And then we have a similar makeup in 2018 when Donald Trump has um, – I, I think polls have him in the, the, the high 30s, maybe low 40s, but he's unpopular. I mean he's below 50 percent in his first term. But nonetheless, we're, we're, we're facing a similar similar style election, but Bob Ehrlich wasn't able to hang on, Professor And it looks Mm -hmm. like the polls, at least, show that Larry Hogan is in good shape. A lot can change uh, until election day. Um, You know, the forty some odd days we have left, but that's it's it's fascinating. Has Maryland has has our political makeup changed, or is Larry Hogan just that popular that he can sustain a tidal wave um, at the national level and still do well here in locally?
1: Right. I think you've got to give some of this credit to Larry Hogan. Uh, You know, Bob Ehrlich's uh, governorship, he really did take a a different approach than Hogan has. Uh, Ehrlich, I I truly believed that that his election heralded some sort of realignment going on in Maryland. He believed that it proved that Republicans were becoming competitive, and he governed really more towards keeping Republicans happy, uh, incredibly confrontational with the General Assembly. I mean most folks who covered – or studied politics at the time, remember the the speech he gave to the assembly about their need to respect him, um, which is sort of never a a smart thing to be doing um, to the people who have to vote on the things that you want. Whereas Hogan, I think, realized from the very beginning that Republicans were never going to be enough to reelect him. Uh, Independents were never going to be enough to reelect him. He needed Democrats. And he's governed in this manner that really put his partisanship, his party affiliation on the sidelines and created an identity that was Larry Hogan, governor, not Larry Hogan, Republican governor. And by the time that, that you know, people had sort of invested themselves in him, uh, came to approve of the job he was doing, two years into that, Donald Trump comes along and really tarnishes the Republican brand. But by that time, Hogan had already established himself separate from the Republican brand. And and I think the fact that he's been more than happy to break with Donald Trump on numerous occasions uh, has helped him as well. And then uh, you can't forget the fact that the the Democratic nominee is having a very, very difficult time uh, connecting with voters and even having a difficult time connecting with the party establishment within the Democratic Party that that should be boosting him. So, So all of those things really help Hogan be where he is. None of the other statewide Republican candidates are, are going to do well at all uh, on Election Day in Maryland. So much of this is Larry Hogan, and, and to Larry Hogan's credit.
0: I I am, am following the race closely just as you are, and just today in the Washington Post, it, you, it seems like that you – instead of Larry Hogan going toe-to-toe with Democratic legislators – you have, you have the the party's nominee for governor taking on Democrats and they look look at look at the feud now and maybe that's too strong of a word, professor, but there is certainly some tension between popular state senator Bobby Zirkin, um, who represents mm-hmm. the Pikesville district, um, very well known and respected attorney. I believe he's the chairman of the Senate Senate Judiciary and a a prominent voice for Democrats in the state Senate. And he's calling – he's basically taking on Ben Jealous and saying you have no idea what we've done with criminal justice reform, and you just don't get it. And Ben, Re- ben Jealous's response is uh, you take – bail. I guess you take money from bail bondsmen or bail lobbyists or something like that, and it just seems like that Ben Jealous is in a recurring argument with some of the state's democratic establishment, and he just can't catch a break.
1: Right. And and I think some of that is, I mean, what do we know? We, we know that Jealous didn't rise up through the Democratic Party in the state. For many, there's a sense that he didn't pay his dues. You know, he's not like Martin O'Malley, who was mayor, who worked his way through state politics, and everybody viewed him as the obvious choice for governor. But beyond that, there are a lot of folks who have been in Maryland politics and in Maryland governments, like Zirkin for quite some time, who have been working very hard to accomplish the things that they believe in. And Jealous comes along and, and in many respects sort of doesn't give credit to anything that they've done and, and talks as if we've done precious little to address issues of, of health care or the criminal justice system. And I think there are quite a lot of Democrats who, who basically feel slighted by that, that, that they've put in the years, they've paid their dues, and they're being made to feel as if they haven't done anything. And I, I don't think they like it. Um, and, and I think there's also a sense that if, if jealous comes in, He's likely to rock the boat of the establishment far more than Larry Hogan has or will. So, sure. you know, if you, are, if you are a Democrat in elected office, sort of invested in the system, you're, you're looking at, at two choices. And for many of these folks, you're deciding that the incumbent Republican governor is your best bet.
0: I, I think that that's exactly how many in the state legislature feel. And looking at Mike Miller, Speaker Bush, Comptroller Peter Franchot, and Nancy Kopp, I think you're looking at people who say, hey, we may disagree with Governor Hogan on some of these issues, but he's easy to work with. We've developed a good relationship with him. We know where he stands. He doesn't pull a whole lot of punches, at least I haven't seen that. And look at the relationship between Peter Franchot and, and Larry Hogan, who ever thought four years ago that they, they, they would become the best of friends? And I think looking at Francho, who's a widely respected Democrat in the state of Maryland, and he's sort of in the mold of some of the old school Democrats that have come to define Maryland politics. I, I think he's he used to be a left of center, Tacoma Park, District 20 state delegate, and he's sort of morphed into a, a moderate business friendly uh, … style Democrat, almost maybe like Mike Miller,
1: although they well, don't like each him. other. You've got to wonder if maybe that's because Mike Miller feels as if Francho is intruded on his territory of maybe. politics. Uh, but I, I've spoken to Francho about this because, of course, he was a Tacoma Park liberal. Uh, but you know, one of the responses you get is I was representing my community, and and he did it quite well. But it was also they were mostly interested in a lot of social issues that he's, he's still um, very much a progressive when it comes to. But when he becomes comptroller and really puts himself in that position where the state's finances and the regulation and taxation of business is his day-to-day business, it, it really did reorient his thinking somewhat. And you, you've seen him sort of embrace that with a passion that has surprised a lot of people. But yeah, he, he is no longer what you would consider to be a, a traditional left of center um, uh, Democrat. He has become very pragmatic, very open to the idea of compromise. And I, I think he saw a kindred spirit in Larry Hogan and the two of them have forged uh, one incredibly impressive relationship. And it's a relationship that's gotten under the skin of a lot of members of the Democratic establishment who I think understood if you've got Statewide elected Democrat comptroller, statewide elected uh, Republican governor, and they've got this really good relationship. It becomes very hard to paint that governor as an untrustworthy extremist, which I think it failed for Brown. But I think for a couple of years anyway, they thought that maybe that's still what they would use to run against him in four years. And they just sort of saw over the passage of the last four years that 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 as an option fell apart. And and I think some Democrats – partially blame Franco.
0: Let's back up to the Democratic primary this year. There was seven or eight candidates who ran. And so let's do a little bit of analysis. I think the earth shattering moment of this year's Democratic primary was when, was May 10th, when Kevin Kamenetz um, mm-hmm. tragically and sadly passed away um, at the young age of 60. And he was, he was running strong. He was well known in Baltimore County Here's a guy who literally worked his way up, was Maryland to the core. Maryland to the core. Baltimore County, um, he grew up in politics. His dad owned a pharmacy, worked his way um, in the pharmacy. And then uh, it it, it looked like about a year ago, maybe Kamenitz, who had the most money and took a lot of money from developers, to say fairly, he, he looked like. He would have been the front runner for the nomination based on money alone and the fact that I think if he became the nominee, having Baltimore County being the county executive there could have derailed Larry Hogan somewhat. But um, as the primary shaped up, um, it was almost like a three-way battle between Richard Baker of Prince George's County, the current county executive, Kevin Kamenetz who was always in the top tier and it kind of broke. Uh, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't know where the campaign was going. And then there was this other guy, Ben Jealous, who came to Maryland, has Maryland roots, and but was from California really, spent a lot, most of his time there. And then was the president of the NAACP. He had more of a national following, but then you had these two Maryland centric county executives who were, uh, either on the county council, like Caminans, or a state delegate, like Baker. After Caminans passed away, I think that that gave Jealous the opening. I really do, Professor.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all. Um, I mean, I, I was speaking with with a reporter uh, shortly, uh, well, shortly before the primary, and the discussion was, you know, who would have been or who would be the strongest nominee. And my argument was it it would have been Kevin Kamenetz. I I believe he would have been the strongest candidate to take on Larry Hogan. I believe he was the the potential nominee that the Hogan camp uh, feared the most. And, you know, sometimes life intervenes in in tragic ways. And when it comes to the politics of it, I think that that threw so much uncertainty into this race. When you had roughly 20 percent of the electorate that was behind him trying to decide where to go. And then you had the situation with Valerie Irvin trying to decide what she would do, uh, and then the difficulties that she had um, getting onto the ballot and then getting the you know, ballot reprinted, um, which is a whole other sort of travesty for Maryland politics. But yeah. all of that uncertainty, it was clear that for the folks who backed Kamenet that they did not want to go to Baker. For, for whatever reason, they just did not want to go to Baker. And, and you had Jealous who was, you had this plan, and that plan was. I'm going to speak to the core progressive base, the ones who are motivated, not really even by Maryland, but the ones who are motivated by anger at Donald Trump and National Republicans. They're going to turn out in this primary. I know they are, and I'm going to be the one that speaks to them constantly. And in the end, he had what turned out to be really a brilliant strategy for a primary in a year like this, a midterm with a very unpopular president. Um, and with with labor behind him, really helped turn out that vote that that delivered a pretty decisive win to him. Uh, and he had the benefit of running against uh, Rusher and Baker, who, you know, in the end, could barely even be competitive in his home county. And the fact that the, the Prince George's County teachers were not behind him, I think, no, I really haven't. sent a real message to the party base that no, this isn't someone that we're going to go with.
0: I saw it breaking towards the end probably about four weeks out and i i I just had a sense that it was moving into jealous's direction and he was the heir apparent to 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 take over but i have to tell you and i am i'm confused as maybe any other observer of maryland politics might be that let's hypothetically we get to election day and Ben Jealous comes up short and he loses who who then becomes the de facto leader of the Maryland Democratic Party as far as let's say the candidate and who who's the public face i, I mean it might it, of course Mike Miller and Speaker Bush are staples and i mean for god's sakes Mike Miller has a building named after him he's still in the state senate but <laughs> who would then become the de facto party leader or the next round, the next heir apparent for uh, governor in 2022?
1: That's that's a really good question. I think what they do is they start looking to um, county executives, find that leader. I don't know that, that Brian Frosch has any desire to be governor. Uh, if he did, there would certainly be a void that he could step into uh, to fill. But it, it really is hard to right now think who that. Sort of natural face would be for the party should jealous go down to defeat uh, because I, I don't think that they would look to jealous to continue to be the the figurehead for the party and I have a feeling that that within the structure of the party the the party um, uh, system in Maryland that that there would be some bloodletting uh, if he were to go down to to lose so there's going to be a lot of restructuring going on and. It may take two years at least until we have a sense for who's
0: emerging strong. Um, I I have a theory that I think that John Delaney had he not decided to run for president and decided instead to run for for governor, I think was as he was originally exploring that possibility. And I think most people until uh, April or May of last year thought, well, what is congressman delaney going to do in his career is he going to not run for re-election is he going to run for governor i mean is he just going to kind of sit this one out and decide something in the future he ultimately chose to run for president which I, i think is a fascinating concept to be the first person to declare for the democratic primary but i think if he had run professor I think he might have actually been the front runner and may have been able to win the primary based on the resources that he had and sort of the moderate centrist. With
1: the idea being that he might have uh, been able to squeeze someone like uh, Kamenetz or even Baker out of it.
0: Yeah, because – I mean he he has virtually (laughs) unlimited wealth.
1: Sure, and and now the question is, is he he committed truly to this run for the presidency? How long would he stick with that before – Deciding, well, you know what? Maybe what I need to do is mm-hmm. is return to to Maryland because there's going to be an open race for governor. Um, and, and even if that's the case, it, it would be essentially two years uh, two years out until that happened. Whenever the the presidential nomination starts to shake out, but there's a perfect opening for him if he decides he wants to come back to the state. Um, the the question would be four years from now. Uh, what will be the state of the Democratic Party? What will the base really look like? Will they accept someone who's a moderate or a centrist? Uh, because right now, you know that that there's so much anger uh, from the progressive base of the party in Maryland about these Democrats who are not supporting Jealous and Especially the idea that I mean, sure, sure. And you've got, um, and, and I think in that in that article in the Post today, the Jealous spokesperson um, saying that you know these these. Democrats who aren't backing uh, Jealous will will pay a political price, I, I think is the term that was used. So there is this desire to punish moderates to conservative Democrats for not falling in line. So the next, the next two years, part of that will be the battle between that insurgent progressive base that turned out for the primary and the establishment part of the party that says, well, potentially uh, says you picked a nominee who lost uh, and lost comfortably in a state that is two to one democratic. So we, we listened to you. This is how it turned out. Now, you know, let us take over again.
0: But would they really suffer a price considering that? I think most people believe that, I mean, listen, I I have Democrats who talk to me all the time who say, um, you know, barring a miracle and of course anything could happen. And they preface with that, that anything could happen. And they always like to say, well, Trump got elected. And I, I think that's a little bit different because he had an electoral college advantage where in Maryland it's winner-take-all. And right. barring something catastrophic, Larry Hogan, based on recent polling, you know, the Goucher poll has him 22 points up, and we can talk about that. But based on recent polling, it looks like he's heading towards re-election. Should, should Jealous lose, it, Would would he stick around in Maryland or would he attempt to Go back to more the national scene because you don't see a whole lot of Marylanders really coming out in getting behind him. You didn't see that in the primary now I know that he has the Maryland establishment that is the Democratic establishment behind him, maybe even somewhat tacitly, but he still has them behind him uh per se um, yeah, he's going to ap- he appears with Ben jealous and uh, or rather he appears with Ben Cardin and he appears with. Mm-hmm. Chris Van Hollen. But, you know, Professor, do you think he sticks around if he loses or does he if some people are even speculating that he could run for president in 2020?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know that he would stay in Maryland um, if, if he were to lose this race. I think it's more a matter of, um, again, those those folks who did turn out in the primary. And, and it's clear that progressives dominated in that primary. And that's why they were able to topple some rather entrenched uh, elected officials to the surprise of, of quite a few of us. But I don't know if if they go down to defeat, if they're going to have the numbers to actually exact any kind of retribution. And and it's worth remembering, of course, that because in Maryland, everything is on that same four-year cycle. It's not like there's some opportunity for for a, a midterm so that you could punish the people who had, you know, in your thinking betrayed the party. Everything right. would take place four years from now. With whoever the eventual nominee is, um, so I, I don't know how much opportunity there would be to punish. If if I were Bobby Zirkin, I wouldn't be too concerned about you know <laughs> being punished for um, not getting in behind uh, the jealous campaign.
0: Yeah, uh, Bobby Zirkin has faced down much much tougher battles as a state senator and has gone toe to toe with with people um, who have a real investment in Maryland. So um you know i want to let's analyze some of these both of the campaigns um, of course larry hogan has been out front early he has he's dominating airwaves he has several million dollars in the bank i believe the last number was what around 9 million i think that's accurate that's about right yeah and he's he's got out early and was able to define jealous and you keep hearing that word socialist and whether we agree or disagree, and we can debate what that word means and what it means in political context and e- the economic context, um, I, I think I don't think Jealous is a socialist. I think that he is a progressive Democrat who is on the who is on the left wing of the party, who campaigned for Bernie Sanders around the country, and is clearly by no means a moderate. But I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as to call him a, a socialist in the truest sense but I think that jealous has had some self-inflicted wounds that hasn't helped him define himself. In fact, I was talking, I still hear the, the, the whole issue around him dropping the F-bomb towards the Baltimore, or rather the Washington Post reporter, Aaron Cox, who was formerly with the Baltimore Sun. And mm-hmm. I, to me, it's just, it wasn't a huge deal. I mean, I think that he caught him off guard, and she asked him, "You know, well, you know, are you a socialist?" And you know, he said what he said. We've all dropped the f bomb, um, but people didn't like that, and, and I keep hearing that they're they're saying well, it's not a, a classy thing to do. It's not something that we we liked, and it it I think it poured salt in an already open wound that people were unsure of him, and now he he exacerbated that image that he's not ready for prime time. Plus, some of the the quotes in the paper, the, the one debate situation, um, then you have a series of other gaffes that, that have occurred, and basically him saying that he doesn't know how to pay for some of his, his – he can't pull out and extrapolate actual Figures, and In fact, Rich Mattelino had called out Ben Jealous during the primary about not being able to cite specific figures on how much it would cost Maryland to implement his plan, Professor. So um, I think he's had a rough go at it, and I'm not saying it's been yeah. all bad, but I think he's had some some missteps. Yeah, and I, I think that's the
1: thing. I, I, I agree as well. I'm surprised by how often I still hear effort, uh, references uh, to the the dropping of the F-bomb. But but I think it's because, it, you know, an unforced error, everybody makes them from time to time. Hogan has certainly made them. Um, of course. He recently made one, I, I would argue, with the whole teachers and the apple thing. But um, <laughs> it, it's, when you, it's when you make one, an unforced error, and then about a week or so later, there's another. And then there's a letter, another. It, it forms its own narrative. And because they come one on top of the other, you talk about them more often than you otherwise would. They don't just sort of. Fade into the background. Rather, you're oh, yeah. And remember when he did this or remember when someone asked him, you know, well, what about Somerset County uh, and, and the, the, how are you going to pay for that? And, and there wasn't really a clear answer for it. It, it just starts to build in that it creates this impression of um, the candidate. And it's not the impression that the candidate wants you to have. And for jealous, you've also got this issue that the Republican the Governors Association and the Hogan campaign, as you said, spent quite wisely. In the weeks right after the nomination was sealed for jealous, and they have defined him to a huge chunk of Marylanders, and they do not view him as – not jealous. They do not view him as moderate in any way. They view him as a a progressive, as a liberal candidate, and there are quite a lot of Democrats who, in addition to independents and Republicans, don't want that, Uh, whereas they view Larry Hogan as overwhelmingly moderate. And they find that to be a, a much more comforting choice. And I don't know how Jealous, with limited money and with what will amount to maybe 20 minutes of talking time in this debate that's coming up, how he changes that narrative between now and Election Day.
0: And speaking of, of gaps, you – and I will come back to Jealous, and I I want to talk about the reporter issue, and I, I know that situation well because I – I covered it and talked about it and uh, re- I I'm, and I'm speaking to the elimination of a, a Herald Mail reporter which is my hometown mm-hmm. newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um but you mentioned Larry Hogan's gaffe with the apple. Now I have a different take on it. I while I thought it was a humorous video, um this could actually end up before a court. And and mm-hmm. Larry and what I'm speaking to, of people this past week, I believe it was this Thursday, Larry Hogan's team produced a video where you had, um, and in fact, I know the staffers who were involved, they're, they're, they're good guys. Uh, they, they walked into um, the Maryland State Educators Association, MSEA, which is the uh, Statewide Teachers Association, into their office, and I, I presume it's in Annapolis, and they brought them some apples and, and said there's enough apples to go around. As a result of them, of Larry Hogan, apparently getting a letter from uh, MSEA saying that he can't use the, the Apple symbol. Um, and alongside that comes the, the teacher recommended. So Larry Hogan put up a, a, a Facebook icon or a Facebook profile picture that had an Apple with said, and it said teachers for, for Hogan. And MSEA, they took legal issue with that. And Professor, this could actually end up being a fascinating court case.
1: Well, it absolutely could. Um, uh, to basically, you know, can they copyright that image uh, to that extent? You know, in the, in the past, they got into a battle. I think it was Doug Gansler a few years ago. He actually reproduced what looked like their ballot because they put together yeah. an Apple ballot and, and he replicated the ballot. And ultimately, he, he conceded um, that, you know, maybe that was a bridge too far. Here, we're simply yeah. talking about the, the image of an, of an Apple. The reason I viewed it as, a, as an error is there's never really a good reason to remind voters that teachers, the union, didn't endorse you, especially if you're counting on independent and Democratic voters to win you over. And then I think that when it escalated, it trampled on the news about the Goucher poll because there were stories he written instead about the, the basket of apples. And I, I think one of the things people like about Larry Hogan is that he is, he's affable and he's self-effacing, doesn't really seem to take himself so seriously. And I think that in some respects that sort of countered that image. I, I would have just sort of let it go because at 22 points up, you, you don't need um, a confrontation like that. You just don't need it. So I, right. I, I would have argued that it was an unforced error because it, it wasn't necessary, and it trampled on the 22-point lead storyline. Uh, story
0: what about the issue – and I've I've seen some Democrats say that – um, particularly my new state senator here in District 17, Cheryl Kagan, on Friday, this past Friday, wrote a letter addressed to the governor saying that he she is calling on him to an, initiate or, or ask the Maryland State Police to initiate an investigation into Brett, the situation with Brett Kavanaugh, and the governor said he is not going to open up a state police investigation, Professor, and he also said that Look, the, the, if somebody comes forward, the Montgomery County police have already declined to open up an investigation. But wouldn't you think that that would be a jurisdictional issue where police would say it's not necessarily the Maryland State Police? That's not their, their role in, in this. And, and, and uh, Dr. Ford, who has accused uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the President Trump's choice for a, the next Supreme Court justice to replace Anthony Kennedy, of sexual assault, wouldn't she essentially have to come forward and ask the Montgomery County police or uh, chief manger here in Montgomery County to open investigation or to at least file charges.
1: Well, right. And, and I mean, it's worth pointing out that, uh, attorney general Frosch basically stated that this would be something that would be handled by the state's attorney in Montgomery County, not the attorney general's office, much as this would be something that would be handled by the Montgomery County state police. So, uh, I obviously have no idea who, who other than Dr. Ford and, and Brett Kavanaugh know uh, who's telling the truth there and what actually happened. So I wouldn't even venture into that conversation other than to say that Ford's claims seem perfectly credible to me. And, and there's a follow-up story out tonight of potentially a second accuser from Kavanaugh's college years. But yeah. that is all sort of separate from – should the governor be ordering the state police to investigate this in the absence of anybody pressing charges or, or reporting the crime? What, what disturbs me about this is you're, you're basically saying, you know, if we were in power, we would politicize the state police and use them to forward a political agenda. Because I can't think of any other reason why we would get the state police involved over the Montgomery County police. And, and that to me is yeah. disturbing. The, the state police should not be used to further a political agenda. And it, I just, I viewed that as a totally inappropriate letter. I, I think if the real concern was we went on investigation to see what happened, it wouldn't have been released as a public letter. That, that was a campaign tactic. The idea being Hogan is 22 points ahead. What can we use to knock a few points off of them? And somebody somewhere came up with the idea of Let's exploit this national story, and, and I just think it was wrong. Uh,
0: and it, it just didn't sit well with me because I, I think that that trivial, trivializes an actual sexual assault. Uh, to to, to put, turn that into politics, the seriousness of this allegation should not be overlooked, and you know, to avoid going national just, just for a moment, um, I, I will say parenthetically that you know, Dr. Ford should be heard. Nobody should be mistreating her in any way, but I, I still we need to hear what she has to say, and the the Senate Judiciary Committee will then evaluate those claims, uh, and and decide w- whether there's merit or not, and and that's it's going to be a at a wildly fascinating roller coaster of a week in Washington, but I, I think that uh, I think that what Cheryl Kagan was doing. And was politicizing this. She she knows that she she should know that who has jurisdiction over this. And to, I I think she they wanted to box Larry Hogan in the corner, but to make a claim to say I'm disappointed that Larry Hogan doesn't stand up for Maryland women professors. Isn't that what people are just tired of politics? They're just, they they, well, they, I, they, they I, drive I think, by attacks.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it absolutely is, and it's such a stretch to suggest that. Oh well, you know Larry Hogan isn't using the state police to do something that the state police wouldn't ordinarily do. So let's just claim that Larry Hogan doesn't respect women. I, I mean that's, that's it's the it's, sort of yeah. divisive character assassination politics that you know unfortunately worked quite well for for Donald Trump. It helped put him in the White House. But I think it's also the reason why so many people are simply disgusted with politics. Yeah,
0: I think people. I saw that and I immediately recoiled because I thought that Cheryl Kagan has done some positive things in Annapolis and this just wasn't the peak of her career to put out a letter like that, knowing that this was nothing more than a way to attack Larry Hogan in a senseless way. And to, like you said, use the word stretch. I think it's an enormous stretch to to, to classify him as someone who doesn't stand up for women i mean that's that's offensive it, it's it's seriously an offensive claim and i hope that I, she's not going to retract it i think that they're going to the democrats are eager to sort of do anything that they can to damage hogan his his poll numbers and um i i think he played that just right and i i don't know um what else will come about with this but he said what he had to say, and I think this is – and if you look at some of the comments, and not to measure the, the feedback from Facebook, but I think it was overwhelmingly negative uh, directed at, at her. Right, and I think –
1: I mean honestly, right now I, I do get the sense that the greatest fear among um, Democrats in Maryland is that if, if we're going into Election Day and it looks like Larry Hogan is just cruising to reelection that it's going to depress Democratic turnout. And their great concern right now isn't losing the governor's mansion. Their great concern is that if depressed turnout happens, they lose down ballot and, and face the possibility of, of Larry Hogan being reelected and the General Assembly no longer having the votes to override a veto. Or in the Senate, the uh, Republicans having the ability to filibuster, which would effectively mean that, that Republicans have a seat at the table in the assembly which is something they have not had for a very, very long time. And I think that, coupled with a Republican governor, is is causing a great deal of headaches for many Democrats in the state.
0: Including Senate President Mike Miller, who I mm-hmm. think that Mike Miller loses this election and loses seats in the state Senate. You will no doubt see him sit down at the table with Larry Hogan and uh, make less of a stink than... I think you could imagine, and I think there's an, there's an argument out there too, Professor, that if Larry Hogan is awarded a second term by Maryland voters, that he would essentially turn into a Chris Christie-like type of candidate, and I reject that. I, I, don't, I, I think Larry oh, right, Hogan has right. really carved out his own brand um, of being a, a moderate or a center-right Republican but doesn't get into the weeds of too many of these uh, fierce partisan battles. I don't see Larry Hogan drifting into Chris Christie territory. I mean, Chris Christie was hated by the time he was uh, he had left office.
1: Right. But I, mean, I think part of that is just the scare tactics. I mean, I, I see this on social media. I see it on comments that are emailed to me, uh, <laughs> basically saying that if if Larry Hogan is reelected, he'll destroy Maryland, that the real Larry Hogan will appear after he's been real. I mean, it's just it, it's it's over the top rhetoric and. When, when you look at his approval rating, when you look at the um, opinion Marylanders have already formed of him, it's over-the-top rhetoric that goes nowhere. But I, I think that there, there are a small group of folks out there who, who – more than anything, I think that they hate Hogan because he is a moderate. They would rather he be a rabid right-wing conservative because then <laughs> they know how to deal with him. But as a moderate, he's a far greater threat to the Democratic Party. Than a, a right-wing Republican ever would be, and I think that that just really angers a lot of folks who who wanted to dismiss his election as a fluke, bad campaign by Brown, people didn't turn out, Hogan elected by accident, we'll fix it in four
0: years, and they're
1: realizing that's that's not what's going to happen.
0: Right. Um, thinking of, thinking ahead to tomorrow night, Maryland Public Television will broadcast the for our first and only gubernatorial debate. I think you you would agree I'm disappointed that the two couldn't come to a consensus to have at least two or three more debates or at least forums where they're both together on a stage or you know in a high school somewhere, and there's a group of people and there's cameras. I, I think one debate has really robbed the electorate of getting a sense of where each of they both stand on the issues. And like it or not, I love debates. I I love having that juxtaposition of either candidate on their other side, having a clean and respectful policy discussion about where they want to take Maryland. So tomorrow night, um, I I think that Ben Jealous um, has an opportunity to get a few zingers in and to highlight his position. But, Professor, is it going to matter? Will any of that really matter? (laughs) Yeah,
1: you know, it's a good question. Uh, And I I, part of me understands why um, the Hogan folks didn't want a lot of debates. Because I think four years ago, the debates made a difference. Uh, The Brown campaign and Democrats have been painting this picture of Larry Hogan, and that was not the person who showed up at those debates. And he was able to very effectively swat down the things that they had been saying about him, about guns or abortion and what have you. Um, So you never want your opponent to sort of have that same opportunity. The, The challenge for Jealous, of course, is he's at this point where I think people know even less about him than they knew about Hogan four years ago, and he does have a lot that he's got to put the bed. Um, how will you pay for, for these proposals? Um, what What is your sort of sense of where Maryland is, is, is going, your connection to the state? Uh, at the same time, convincing voters that you can trust him and that even though you overwhelmingly approve of Hogan, we, we can do more as a state. And you know, I, there's just this part of me that thinks that, that what Jealous needs to do is Basically, go into that that debate, stop talking about the revolution in Maryland, and basically say, I know that you're happy with Larry Hogan. I know that you're satisfied with the job that he's done, but I have to believe that you also know that there's more we could do as a state. There's more that we could accomplish, but that Larry Hogan doesn't want to take us there, and, and I do. And you can trust me to take us where you think this state needs to go tamp down the talk of um, you know, the prison population reductions and the uh, Medicare for all talk that everybody wants to say, well, how do you accomplish that? He can't explain it in 20 minutes. He's just got to convince folks that they can trust him, that that as Democrats, they can come home to their party and to him.
0: I don't think that he's had an opportunity to truly define himself throughout this election. And I think that with such lacking in in in, in finances and lacking in, in in the money category um as well as these these un, these errors and gas that he's gone through Ben Jealous can he doesn't have an he hasn't had taken the opportunity yet to say all right guys I get it that you like governor hogan fine but let's talk about just like you said professor let's talk about where we can go the vision for Maryland and avoid talking about all these national politics, the revolution and, you know, the over the top drama, the hoorah speech, and just get down to the nitty gritty and start talking about people in Western Maryland or in Somerset County and talk about kitchen table issues, the economics about public schools. And if he stuck to issues rather than over the top rhetoric, a lot of it is, and, and in fairness, on both sides. But I think Ben Jealous could really appeal to some of the Democrats in the state legislature and, and say, well, you know, ex-Democrat did this policy on criminal justice reform, and Senator Zirkin had a great idea. And with me, we can continue that course to alleviate the prison population, and then we can legalize marijuana eventually. And we will get there with me, but Larry Hogan would stall that in the process where we can get there a little bit quicker, but I just need your trust. And I need you to understand that we're all Marylanders here and we, we want to, to respect the process and stand with me and and give me your vote. And, and I hope that you trust me on election day, but I don't think you're going to see that because Ben Jealous hasn't been doing that whatsoever. And maybe he just Maybe he just has a, a different mindset or a different strategy, and he's trying to capitalize on what's happening nationally. But I, I, it hasn't trickled down, Professor. It just hasn't.
1: Well, uh, it, that, that's right. It, I mean I think, I think you, you know as well as I that the, the folks who are part of the Jealous campaign, either in it or tangentially connected to it, adamantly believe or, or at least state that all they need to do is turn out the folks who, who didn't turn out in 2014 – they believe they don't have to convert a single Hogan Democrat in order to win, and that has been their approach all along. And, and I have always thought it was a flawed approach. I still think it's a flawed approach. I, I think the Goucher poll confirms that it's a flawed approach. The question is, you know, are they so invested in that storyline that we just need to turn out the voters that didn't turn out before? Can they make the change now to try to win back the folks who have left and, and are, are – uh, going to to Hogan, uh, I, I don't think they want to make
0: that transition. I, I haven't seen it, and I haven't seen some of his surrogates make the that connection. That while some of the Democrats might be a little more center than than Mr. Jealous, that here's what we can do, and here's where we can work with. A lot of times, with both sides or on the the fringes on both sides it's all or nothing. Hey, you're with us or you're not. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it works like that here in Maryland professor. Um, And I'm, I'm going to be paying close attention to tomorrow's debate and see what happens, but I don't think it's going to change a whole lot of voters minds. I think people are generally made up their mind, but who knows? I mean, there might be a. a, I, I saw the Goucher poll. And I think there's a percentage of the people who say they're undecided, but, Really, I think that more people are decided than what they claim, but, um, well, it's the, the hour is almost up, but, uh, I I'm fascinated by Maryland politics because it is a, an excellent study that even in a, a blue state blue, as in there's two to one democratic registration over Republicans. Um, there's a wildly popular Republican governor at this point And, uh, the the Maryland establishment Democrats are, I think, somewhat uh, been knocked on their feet a bit. And this election could really shape how future Republicans run um, and, and follow a, a similar mold as Larry Hogan.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I've said to people for so many years, everyone ignores Maryland because they say, oh, it's, it's a blue state. Yeah. Maryland is a Democratic state. It is not— a progressive state. It has never been. It was home to a very big tent coalition of Democrats, of conservatives and moderates, the folks who everywhere in the everywhere else in the country left the Democratic Party and became Republicans. They stayed Republicans in I'm sorry, they stayed Democrats in Maryland. I believe that under O'Malley, the pressure on those conservative and moderate Democrats grew and that's what drove them away and they ultimately voted for Hogan. But to look at Maryland and just dismiss it as oh it's just a democratic state I I think is just too short-sighted and that's why you, you really just need to dig in and pay better attention to Maryland politics. It's a,
0: it's a fascinating case study I know you're going to be following it and uh, Professor is I know that you you write uh, occasionally you write a, a blog and a personal website um, it's the FreeStateBlog.blogspot.com is that correct
1: Free State or blog. Blog Pre-state or blog yeah i i admittedly um I, I don't have nearly as much time for it as i used to i keep <laughs> meaning to get back to it and then you know the rest of life sort of interferes life happens. i am hoping to have an analysis um of either on the blog or on um uh maryland reporter uh on the debate
0: yeah great stuff and you know one other tidbit i saw last week that ben jealous had criticized uh, Len Lazarick, the editor of Maryland Reporter, and some people in the jealous camp are say, well, who who is Len Lazarick? And I think most people who have been following Maryland politics for a long time know that Len Lazarick has been a staple in Maryland statewide politics and among the press corps, he's one of the most respected guys in the press corps and who's done some right. really great reporting over the years. And I just think that yeah, that yeah. was a, a misstep
1: to to not know who he is and then to accuse the website of being a a right-wing website funded by right-wing money. I I feel like we don't know what website they were thinking of, but it certainly wasn't Maryland reporter.
0: It's down the middle. Len features articles from, uh, from progressives, from, uh, from uh, conservatives like Red Maryland. Um, He, he features uh, my work. He features the seven states. So, um, and then, of yep. course, The Sun and every, 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 every other media outlet. So it's just disappointing to see that, um, you know, alongside to, to chalk up the, the MAKO conference as just partying with lobbyists. And I had an entire show on that. I, I think that was another disappointing um, statement that that people in state politics know how important that conference is. So um, right, right. with that. It was um, a missed
1: opportunity. Yep.
0: No, missed opportunity. You want to get your message out, no matter where and what's better than going to Ocean City in August? I I can't think of. I I love Ocean City. I mean, not so much anymore, but I I love I love visiting for a couple of days. Um, I went to I went to South Carolina with my parents and my wife for a week vacation, and that was nice. We got out of luckily we got out in time and didn't didn't have any issues with the the hurricane, but. Nonetheless, Professor, this has been a really fantastic hour. I always appreciate your perspective. Um, I think you have a brilliant take on politics, and you're always transparent and straight down the middle. So, uh, it it means a lot to me that you came on the show tonight and and had a conversation.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. I, I love your commentary. I read it all the time, uh, and I was happy to come on. I was very glad that you invited me.
0: Absolutely. Well. Sir, you have a, a, a wonderful week. I hope that your students are doing well and learning lots to uh, in your courses and uh, gain that knowledge, and I then go off too. and be yeah. And and your students can go off and be future state delegates and state senators and future governors in Maryland.
1: I, I have quite a few. That I have no doubt that that's where they're going to wind up. That's
0: that is cool. So well, with that, I appreciate your time, professor, and I hope you have a, a fantastic week.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so
0: much. All right. Uh, take care. Bye bye. Right. That was my friend, Dr. Todd Eberly. He's a professor at St. Mary's College. He's an associate professor of political science and public policy. And we had a detailed discussion about state politics, about the governor's race. So, fantastic opportunity to, to talk with him. He has an excellent perspective, a brilliant guy. Really appreciate his time. Uh, debate is tomorrow night. Uh, This is we're broadcasting on Sunday night. The gubernatorial debate tomorrow night will be broadcast, I believe, at 7 p.m. on Maryland Public Television. I don't know what channel that is. It's probably in the lower teens. So uh, I'm sure we'll cover that next week. So stay tuned, everybody. Uh, You can follow me on the Web at a minor And I am here typically every Sunday night, barring any catastrophe, on a Minor Detail Radio podcast. My name is Ryan Minor, of course. I hope you have a successful and prosperous week. Thank you, everybody.